Over a significant chunk of this year, we've been looking at Scripture a lot to see what it means for us to be disciples. What does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus? And there isn't, there isn't an individual component to that. That we are called as, as individuals to be followers of Him. We are called as individuals to put our trust and faith in Him. But there is also a communal aspect of our life together. When God, when God extends His call to Abram and He makes that initial covenant with Abram and He calls Abram and He says, what does He say? He says, I'm going to make of you a people. God doesn't just call Abram, He calls a people. And He continues to call a people. God has a people and, and the expression for us in the, in the new covenant of this people is the church. And so we're going to be spending some time over the next uh, couple of weeks, and then we're going to sort of cycle back into it a couple more times over the next few months. We're going to be looking at what it means to be the church. Because we are called to be disciples, we're called to be followers of Jesus, but we are called to be disciples and followers of Jesus within the context of his people, within the context of the church. And so I figured that a great place for us to start, whereas we look the next couple of weeks, is for us to be thinking about some of the distinctives of the church. What are some of these public things that we do as the church that maybe we don't do and you don't see in other places. Next week is going to be the Fill the Tank Sunday. We've been talking about it for a while now. It's going to be an emphasis, and we're going to be looking at baptism next week. But I figure this week, since it was the week that we were already slotted and prepared and scheduled to celebrate the table together, that it would be opportune for us to look at the table. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians this morning. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So go ahead and start turning there if you have your scripture with you. If you don't, I'd encourage you to grab one of those black hardback Bibles in the pew front in front of you. And if you need a copy of God's Word, please take one of those with you today as our gift to you. There are these things that we have that we call ordinances. Now, in the Baptist church, as Baptists, we traditionally recognize two ordinances. We recognize the Lord's table and we recognize baptism. There are some Baptists who recognize a third ordinance of foot washing. These would be what my grandfather would always refer to as foot washing Baptist because my grandfather was nothing if not creative. But, as, uh, but in, the, in, the, in the strain of Baptist life in which we reside, we've always recognized two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. An ordinance is something that Jesus has called on us to do. And so while there are these two that are special, there are some other things that God has called us to do, and, and we're going to be looking at those as well over the next couple of weeks. But we're going to start here, we're going to start at the table, and we're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be starting with the 17th verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. If you are able, will you stand with me as we read God's word together? This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. 
Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we open your word and as we study it this morning, as we focus on these words about your table, God, I would pray that that we would bring the spirit and the posture in our hearts that is needed to hear words of encouragement and words of hope, but also to hear words of discipline and words of correction. And God, as we study your word, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul has this ongoing relationship with the, the church in, in Corinth. He writes this letter, church, Paul is actually the, what we might think of as the planting pastor or the founding pastor for the church in Corinth. He, he goes and Acts tells us the story. He goes to Corinth and he goes into the synagogue and he engages in a ministry of several years in duration in, in study and in teaching and in, and in bringing the gospel to the people in Corinth. And in fact, Acts tells us that there are uh, huge numbers of conversions of the Jewish community in Corinth, including several of the synagogue leaders. 
That's not the reception that Paul gets everywhere that he goes. Um, You know, there are many times when Paul is whipped and run out of town and um, all of those sorts of ugly, nasty things that happen to him. But in Corinth, it appears that there is this real positive beginning to the church in Corinth. So Paul gets the church started and turns it over to some of the elders there, and Paul moves on because Paul's calling is not to to sit for long seasons, years and years in one place, but Paul's calling is to to be an evangelist and be a church planner. And so Paul moves on, and, and he's in Ephesus when he writes this letter that we have as 1 Corinthians. Now, there are some references earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians to earlier letters that Paul had written. So we know that these two letters that we have in Scripture, the 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, are not the only letters that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. It's clear that he has sort of stayed in contact with them um, over a season and uh, is, is writing to them uh, um, on a regular basis. But what has happened and what, what is the, 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 the impetus of this particular letter is that there are divisions that have begun to develop in the church in Corinth. Now, I know that we are Baptist and we are known for always being A-plus good on church unity. So I know that none of us would have any understanding of what a church division might look like. That is a joke. Because we are Baptists. And there are about 86,000 Baptist churches in this country that have started off of another Baptist church. But what are the church divisions in Corinth? I'll give the people in Corinth this. They at least, as far as we know, are not divided over the color of the pew cushions, which is what some churches have split over. But they are divided because they're still trying to figure out what it means to be the church. See, we're very lucky. We've got 2,000 years that we can look back on on what does it mean to be the church. You ever think about that? I think about a lot in the context of our, of our nation. We have 200 plus years that we can look back on on what it means to be an American. And there are various streams and various thoughts on that. But I think, about, think about those men gathered in Philadelphia in the 1770s, leading that Continental Congress. They didn't know what it meant to be an American. George Washington, when he was sworn in as the first president of this country, had no idea what it meant to be president. Do you know why we don't say your highness to the president? Because George Washington said that that's not what he wanted. And like this, Corinth and this first generation of the church, they're having to figure out what it means to be the church. What does it mean to be a group of believers who gathers regularly to hear the Word of God read and expounded on? What does it mean to be a group of people come together as the body of Christ dedicated to the proposition of following Jesus and making disciples? So they didn't know what it meant. And they're trying to figure it out. And and what happens when you get a room of pe- group of people in a room together trying to figure out how to do something none of them have ever done before? You end up with about 86 different opinions, right? And that's only if there are three or four people in the room. So that's part of it. Part of the thing that's happening in Corinth, too, is there's a certain amount of worldliness that has entered the church. 
And what that means is that means that there are people who are gathering who think of themselves as faithful followers of Jesus, who think of themselves as faithful members of the community, but who are allowing themselves to be formed more by what was going on out there than what was happening in the church. They were being shaped more by the world around them than they were being shaped by the gospel. So this is, this is why Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. This is what the whole letter is about. And just this portion that we read this morning, we see some of these divisions. Paul starts this this study, this, this explication of the Lord's Supper by noting some of the abysmal behavior of some of the people in Corinth. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you got a letter from someone that you loved and respected and looked up to, and this line was in it, it would probably make you pause, right? Now, in this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Brothers and sisters, that is a sit-up-and-take-notice line, isn't it? It's something that should make them and should make us pay attention. See, there's supposed to be a time of worship and reflection. It's supposed to be a time of unity. It's supposed to be a time of the community coming together for a shared experience, for a shared purpose, and for a shared worship. And yet these divisions and these distinctions have crept in, and in fact, we get the impression that it's even turned into a bit of a circus. They aren't partaking in the Lord's Supper together. Even if they're all in the same room at the same time, they're not partaking in the Lord's Supper together because they're bringing an attitude of individualist and individualism to the table. They aren't coming as a member of the body. They're coming as Jim or Sue or Mary Ann because those are very common Greek names. See, this is the ultimate expression of me and Jesus religion. You know me and Jesus religion, right? I don't need the church. I just need Jesus. No offense. I don't need to go to church. I experience Jesus on the golf course. I don't need Jesus. I experience Him on the beach. I don't need the church. I I can get my Jesus sitting at home by myself. Thank you very much much. Me and Jesus religion. It's this attitude that separates us from the body. But here's the thing. What's that body is? The body is the body of Christ. It's the body of Jesus. When we separate ourselves from the church, when we think that it's me, myself, and I, and we don't need the church, we are separating ourselves from the body of Christ. And what's happening in Corinth at the table is they are bringing these attitudes. Yes, they're coming together, they're in the same room together, and yet they are coming to the table as individuals and not as members of the body. It's a total renunciation of the place of community and the congregation in the role of proper worship. 
And what Paul says is he says, there is nothing in this that I can praise. We look to verse 22. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. It's got nothing good. And Paul is one of those. If you go back, Paul has some harsh words, but if you go back and you read Paul, Paul almost always is looking for the silver lining. He's almost always looking something positive to hang something on there. Are you all familiar? Are you all familiar with the, there are different things that call, you can call it like a correction sandwich or a positivity sandwich, right? Say you've got somebody that you need to say something not so great to. You, you say something positive, and then you offer the correction, and then you conclude with something positive. You know, you know, Jimmy, that shirt is really lovely, but I really need you to wear deodorant when you come to class. And those light-up shoes are amazing. That's a, that's a positivity sandwich. Paul is the master at this. Paul is always finding something positive to pull out. And yet here, as the way the Corinthians are coming to the table, Paul has nothing positive to say. And we see in the very next verse, we see why Paul is taking this so seriously. Verse 23, For I, for I, Paul, received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, broke it, took the cup, and blessed it. See, this isn't something that Paul's making up. This isn't something where, where Paul sits there and he's like, well, I heard about this thing that Jesus did and I think that it's an important thing and we should probably figure out some way to commemorate it and continue to go on. It's not something that, that Paul made up because he thought it was good. Sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes we have methodologies or we have things that come into the church or come into our lives that we think are good and are positive, but they're not from Jesus. They're not necessarily bad. They aren't from Jesus directly. But Paul says this, this is something I got directly from the Lord. Now we know in Paul's life, right, we know that Paul wasn't one of the original apostles. We know that Paul wasn't at that table when Jesus broke the bread and blessed the cup. But we also know that after Paul is called on the road to Damascus, that he has a season of several years in which he studies in which he learns, and in which he is discipled, and in which he communicates and communes with God. And I think it was in, probably in that season when the Lord instructed him on what the table was to be. On the night that he was betrayed. It's important for us to remember that that when Jesus breaks the bread and shares the cup, the one who is going to betray Him is there. At the very first sharing of the Lord's Supper, Judas was present. But what was this meal that they were, that they were gathered together for? It was, a, it was a Passover meal. Passover is this is this meal that exists that commemorates the, the night that the spirit of death 
passed over the people of Israel while they were still held in Egypt. And the spirit of death kills the firstborn in all of Egypt. And yet, what had happened? The the people had, had sacrificed and they had blood on the doorpost of their houses and the spirit of death passed over them. And Passover becomes one of the important festivals in Jewish life to remember this. To remember this inauguration of the covenant. To remember and commemorate when death passed over. And when the people were called out of bondage by their God. It's the Passover meal. See, the Passover meal is, is, a, is a, a remembrance of the old covenant. And these words that we have here in Corinthians, these words of Jesus, what does he say? He says, this is the covenant cup of the new covenant. Jesus is, is taking the Passover meal and he is infusing it, the symbol of the old covenant, and he is infusing it with meaning and remembrance of the new covenant. The spirit of death swept over Egypt, but passed over those who were marked by the blood of the Lamb. The new covenant is established by the blood of the perfect Lamb. And those of us who are marked by that blood are members of this new covenant. A covenant is is this divinely created bond through which God administers His his kingdom program. What What we celebrated here, right here last night, was covenant. Marriage is a covenant. It is promises that two individuals make before the community to each other and before God. Jill and Hunter, actually, you know, one of the things that that a lot of folks do in weddings now is they have some sort of symbol. We have, you know, the most common uh, wedding symbol is is our wedding rings and the giving and exchanging of wedding rings. But I'm sure you've been to weddings where they've done um, unity sand, right? Where you take sand and you pour it in together. We had, a, we had a, a unity candle at our wedding. It was great. We went to Bush Gardens and we got like the candle artist guy who makes like the really fancy, awesome candles to like make one for us and it was in our wedding colors. It's great. You know, and in that, what happens? You have, you have these, you have these two, two lights, right? Or two articles of sand and they get poured in together and they make one thing. And it is this very beautiful image of what happens where two folks come together and make one thing. But what Jill and Hunter did yesterday was, was something that I had heard but had never seen before. And they had, they had this, this plaque, and it had three chords on the plaque. And their, their unity celebration there, what they did is they, they came over here, and they wound braided those three cords together. Now, when they did that, there were two smaller cords and one bigger cord. 
Because what the symbol is there is it comes from Ecclesiastes where, where it says you know, that, 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 that one is overwhelmed, but two are there to support each other. When one falls, if he falls by himself, there's no one to lift him up. But if he falls with someone else, there's there to lift him up. But a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And th- those three strands in a marriage covenant are the man and the woman and God. One of the things that I loved about what Hunter and Jill had was they had two smaller strands and one bigger one. Because guess what it is? It's not the smaller strands that's adding the strength to that. It's the bigger strand. It's God. That's a covenant. God makes covenant with His people. He he makes promises. It's It's a relationship in which you promise that there will be certain things that each of you do for one another. And, and these covenants of God, these, whether we talk about the, the, the covenant that He makes in Eden, the covenant that He makes with Noah, the covenant that He makes with Abraham, the covenant that He makes with Moses, or the new covenant that was inaugurated by Christ's blood, it's promises of God and it's how He tells us who His people are and how He is at work in the world around us. Those who operate under the covenant receive its intended blessings. The new covenant refers to this new relationship that God established with His people through the burial, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian... And by that, what I mean is if you are one who has truly trusted in Jesus as the substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for your sins and intend and strive to follow Him and live the way that He calls you to every day, you are a member of this new covenant grafted into God's people. On the night that he was to be betrayed, Christ gives this act to us to remember what it is and how it is that we become members of the new covenant. He ends that passage with words that I often say at the table as well. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Have you ever thought of the act of coming to the table as an act of evangelism? Of an act of proclamation? I don't think we do sometimes. I think sometimes we think it's this thing that we do and it's nice, and when we don't do it, we miss it. But we fail to see and understand that it is an act of proclamation. Who are we proclaiming to? We're proclaiming to the world. This is who we are. This is how we are made this way. And you too can be a part of this. But we're also complaining, proclaiming to the devil. 
We're, we are reminding him of his defeat and coming judgment. And we proclaim to one another. We recognize anew the victory over sin and the spiritual authority that Christ has won for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. Often when we pray together on Sunday morning, what do I say? I say, let us boldly approach the throne of grace together. Brothers and sisters, we are able to do that because of the new covenant. The old covenant had very strict rules about how one could approach the throne of God. And in fact, the actual throne of God could be approached once a year by one man. On Yom Kippur, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and stand before the throne of God. And yet now, because of the new covenant, you and I cannot simply stand before the throne, but we can boldly stand. Before the throne. There was no boldness in the high priest when he walked into the Holy of Holies. I, you've heard me tell this part before, and you probably have heard it many times, in fact. But when the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies on that day, on the Day of Atonement, he would have a rope tied around his ankle because in case he was unworthy to stand before the throne, he would fall over dead and they would have a way of fishing him out. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. None of us on our own power are worthy to stand in front of the throne. And if it was not for the work of Christ, if we were to approach the throne and try and stand before it, we would fall dead in our unworthiness. But because of the work of Christ, because of the new covenant, we are able to stand boldly before the throne because His righteousness and His worthiness covers us. Paul is reminding the people in Corinth that this is to be taken seriously. And this is where he says, he says that here that, that so whenever whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin. Now what's important here, none of us are worthy on our own. Notice he doesn't say anyone who is unworthy. He says anyone who partakes in an unworthy manner. And this is what the Corinthians have been doing. They've forgotten what the table is, what it is for, and they've forgotten what happens here. Because this isn't about personal worthiness. Because, because none of us, no, not one of us is worthy. What's happening is the, the people in Corinth are taking something sacred and they're treating it as commonplace. This special moment of remembrance and intimacy with the Lord and His people has lost its solemn significance because of the self-centered way in which people are engaging in it. Brothers and sisters, I want to be really clear. We are not required to come to the table without any sin in our life. 
Because if that was the requirement, not one of us would ever be able to come to the table. Ever. But we are called to take this seriously. To recognize its significance. And to recognize its role in bringing unity to the body. If we were to approach this table in glib fashion, if we were to to just see this as yet one more way of putting food in our maw, we would be showing contempt for the sacrifice of Jesus. And that would be a sin. In the sixth chapter of 2 Kings, there's this really kind of amazing story. Um, Some, maybe next summer, I may go through and we may just do some of the fun stories that are found in 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Because there's some really, there's some fun stuff in there. I mean, of course, you know, there's the stories that we know of David and Goliath and, you know, and some of that sort of stuff. The old Sunday school story. But there's some also some other really cool stories in there. And there's this cool story in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And what's happened is there's this king who's up in Syria, and he's attempting to destroy God's people. Now, this is after the kingdom has split, so he's coming against the northern kingdom, which is, um, which is, is, is headquartered as capital uh, in Samaria. And so, so he, keeps trying to, he keeps trying to attack them. He keeps trying to ambush them and ambush uh, Israel's king, the, the king of the northern kingdom, and it keeps failing. And, and the king, this, this king of Aram, uh, tries to discover why it is that his traps and his machinations have been unsuccessful. And when he does, he, he asks, starts asking questions. He realizes because of the prophet Elisha, not Elijah. Elijah has gone at this point, and it's Elisha. And because of, because of what the prophet Elisha is doing, in fact, at one point he says, he says King, you can't even, you, there's nothing you can do. Because he's got this prophet Elisha, that, that king has got this prophet Elisha, and Elisha can tell him the dreams that you are dreaming in your own bedroom. That's, a, that's an interesting visual and an interesting take on it, and I hope there's nobody around who's tuned into the dreams that I dream in my bedroom. Be bored most of the time. And so, so the king goes after Elisha, and once again, the, 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 they fail. And one of the reasons they fail is because Elisha stands up as they're coming at him. He goes, this is not the way I want God to make you blind. And every member of the army falls blind. Now, what good is a blind army? Not much. And in fact, an entire army taken captive by one man. And so they go into the capital of Samaria. And he marches, Elisha marches the army into the capital. And the king says, I'm going to kill them all because they are my enemies. And Elisha says, wait. How about you feed them as friends and send them on their way? And because of this, these two enemies are reconciled, at least for a season. This is what 
This is what happens at the table. We who were enemies of God and blinded by our sin and sinful desires have our eyes opened and are welcome to join the table of the King with whom we were once enemies. The King's table is a place of honor and reverence. And to be given a seat at this table is no small thing. And to be offered a seat at the king's table while you are an enemy of the king is almost unheard of. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a a celebration and an act of worship meant for those who profess faith in Christ. Meant for those of us who were once enemies, who were once blind, but who now see. Who have now been reconciled. See, see, it's, it's for those of us who, who have professed faith in Christ, because for those who have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's, it's meaningless, because there is no love or, or friendship or fellowship that is expressed here. If you come to this table as one who does not know Christ, you come to this table as Judas came to the table on pretense and as an enemy, and as a betrayer. This is a a celebration of a changed life through the Lamb of God's work on the cross. It's It's a way that we come together to acknowledge that who we were before we met Christ is not who we are now. And it's a reminder to reset our focus. To remember whom we serve. To remember how we are to serve. And to remember how we are continuing to be transformed and renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit each and every day. This table is intended for those who are followers of Jesus but it is a table to whom there is always an open invitation. And I would ask this morning as we come to this table, if you have yet to respond to that invitation, if you have yet to come to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would ask two things of you. I would ask that A, you seriously consider responding to that invitation. And I would ask that you, if have, you have not responded to that invitation, that you refrain from participating in this table this morning. But know that the invitation is always open, and you simply have to accept it. Because on the night that he was to be betrayed, the Lord did take the bread, and he broke it. And he said, This is my body, broken. For you. And when that, when that meal was over, the meal that he had, had shared with men that were going to deny him and a man who was going to betray him, when that meal was over, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is the cup of a new covenant. My blood shed for you and for the many. 
And he asked us, brothers and sisters, to do this in remembrance of him. I will remind you, in case this is your first encounter with our prepackaged elements, there is a little bit of cellophane at the top to get you to your wafer, and then the foil that will get you to your juice. And one day, one day, we will share in the same bread and in the same cup again. But until that time, brothers and sisters, this, this is the bread of life, the body of Christ, broken for you. Take, eat, in remembrance of him. This is the cup of the new covenant. Christ's blood shed for you and for me so that the spirit of death may pass over us and graft us into God's family, into the new covenant. Take, drink, in remembrance of him. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We're going to have a few moments now, just a few moments of quiet reflection as we think and we reflect on what this table, what this bread and this cup means. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be 387. Blessed be 